Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker. Today we have episode 266 for April 4th, 2022. It is April already. My goodness, the year is going so fast. So today I've got a new show for you, plenty of topics to cover today. But real quick, before we get into that, first of all, quick updates. If you have not updated your macOS and iOS devices, that is basically <laughs> anything Apple, please do so uh, right away. Sometimes even though you have automatic updates set, you have to kind of poke it to, to make it happen. So the easiest way to do that on all your devices is just to go to the preferences or settings and look up software update. It will check then if you have an update available. It might even already have a little indication there that you've got an update available and just tell it to go ahead and do that. Uh, there's a couple of big security bugs that were found recently that you need to get fixed. Similarly, make sure you update Google Chrome. You know, if you insist on using Chrome, if otherwise, maybe again, use this as an opportunity to try something else. The Brave browser is probably the easiest way to migrate away from Chrome into something more private. It's very similar to Chrome. It's built on the same underlying web engine as Chrome. And the privacy settings are already very good right out of the box. Uh, otherwise, Firefox is still my favorite personally and something I really think we all should be supporting as the only non-Chromium-based browser out there that is uh, still good about privacy. So, so anyway, update Chrome if you must use it. Otherwise, you know, maybe... Use this as an opportunity to try something better. But before we go any further, the moment you're all waiting for, the announcement of the winners of the big fifth anniversary podcast giveaway. Uh, it went on for basically the month of March, and it ended last Friday. And I have randomly chosen the 10 winners, and I'm going to announce them right now. So the tier three winners, there were five of them. And each person in this category will get a free PDF copy of my book and a one-year subscription to Malwarebytes and StartMail. And those winners are Trenner S. from the UAE, Cassandra D. from Riverside, California, Bill Y. from Tokyo, Japan, Lacey W. from Missoula, Montana, Odin H. from Sebastopol, California. You have all won 125 bucks worth of stuff. And next up, there were four Tier 2 winners, and this is worth uh, over 300 bucks worth of stuff. Again, a PDF copy of my book. One-year subscriptions to uh, Malwarebytes and StartMail, but also to the Priv app, one-year subscription to Fastmail, and a free Go Incognito course from TechLore. And those four Tier 2 winners are Piyush K. from Mumbai, Warren F. from Garden Grove, California, David M. from Madrid, Spain, Jaime F. from Leoa, I think I pronounced that, Spain. All of you have won the Tier 2 prizes. Now, that leaves one grand prize winner. This is over 600 bucks worth of stuff. It had to be somebody in the United States because there's a lot of books in here and they're heavy and would be very expensive to ship worldwide. Uh, so uh, this person uh, was from Memphis, Tennessee, and they are going to win a signed physical copy of my book, one of my highly coveted challenge coins, two, count them, two YubiKeys. Uh, these are hardware security keys. That's their very popular version five NFC security keys. A copy of Privacy is Power, by Carissa Valise, a selection of four tech hardbacks from A-Press, a start page shirt, and everything else we've already mentioned. That would be the Go Incognito course, the one-year subscriptions to the Priv app, Malwarebytes, StartMail, and FastMail. And drumroll please, the winner for the grand prize is Elizabeth C. from Memphis, Tennessee. 
So everybody, those are the winners. I will be emailing you all uh, this afternoon for everybody in tier two and tier three. It's all digital stuff. So I can, you'll get your prizes immediately via email. And for the grand prize winner, you'll get some of that stuff via email and the rest of it will have to get your shipping address. And I will send those out later this week. Congratulations to all the winners. Thank you again to everybody who entered. And I'm going to be doing more promotions of different varieties throughout this year as I try to grow my audience. So stay tuned. There will definitely be many more opportunities to win cool stuff. Okay, so as I said, today is a news show. Uh, I've got a few topics here we're going to cover. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this Lapsus gang. I think I mentioned them uh, not that long ago, but there has been a development in that story. Uh, we're going to talk about the Russian cybersecurity firm Kaspersky and how the FCC and the U.S. government are basically saying you should not be using them. And we're going to talk a little bit about my opinion on that. There's a really tricky new attack for phishing your passwords, and they're calling it a browser-in-browser attack. I'm going to tell you what that's about and how to avoid it. There's been another new twist in this whole supporting Ukraine, anti-Russia thing among software people, and it's kind of disturbing and troubling. Uh, You know, I understand where this person's heart is at, but again, a lot of times in crisis situations like this, we we do things that are a little crazy, hoping they're for the good, and sometimes they're not. And I've got a story about the Yandex search engine, which is often called the Google of Russia. And even if you think you're not using it, you may still be using it. And I'll explain why that could be a problem. In a related story, uh, another article about how a lot of personal data is being exposed to hackers through mobile apps that are not protecting your info. And then another bash on Google story. Uh, I, I hate to do that too much, but since I've been talking about this de-Google my life stuff, and that's going to be my tip of the week again this week, the, the final part in that series, I wanted to lead into that with another Google story, and there's plenty to find. Uh, and this one is about the new Topics advertising system that's going to be replacing Flock. It's starting to come out in the beta builds of Chrome. Uh, so I want to give you a little heads up about that, and that will be a perfect segue into... The fourth part, actually the fifth installment total, if you include the strategy one, of my de-Google My Life campaign, uh, which is really also hopefully de-Googling your life. All right, so plenty to talk about. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, there's been several stories in the last couple weeks about this gang called Lapsus, and that's L-A-P-S-U-S with a dollar sign, an extra dollar sign at the end of the name. This brazen group has done lots of bad things over the past you know, few weeks or maybe a couple months, some of which I know we've already talked about, but there has been a, an arrest uh, around this uh, that some are saying is from this gang, and yet I'm not, we're not so sure. So let me read uh, this article from Naked Security, and this was posted about a week ago, and there have been other developments since then, which I'll talk about after I read this. And it says, you've almost certainly heard of the Lapsus hacking crew. That's Lapsus. L-A-P-S-U-S, which is as good a Latin word as any for quote-unquote data breach, followed by a dollar sign. Microsoft refers to this cyber gang by the more pedestrian moniker of the Dev5037 actor and noted in a blog post earlier this week that the group has been involved in quote, a large-scale social engineering and extortion campaign against multiple organizations with some seeing evidence of destructive elements, unquote. Microsoft itself was one of the companies that Lapsus managed to compromise, allegedly making off with gigabytes of Microsoft source code. Fascinatingly, Microsoft notes that the Lapsus crew went public even while that data theft was in progress. The group seems to like bragging openly on Telegram about hacks it's busy with and businesses that it's determined to embarrass. 
The Microsoft security team wryly noted that, quote, this public disclosure escalated our action, allowing our team to intervene and interrupt the actor mid-operation, limiting broader impact, unquote. Other cybercrimes attributed to Lapsus include a January break-in at the 2FA, or two-factor authentication service, Okta, which ultimately only came to light this week, and that would be last week now, and an unusual extortion attempt against graphics card company NVIDIA, which I have talked about on this show already. Most ransomware extortions, whether they're old-school ransom notes offering decryption keys to unlock scrambled files, or whether they follow the more recent cybercrime path of blackmailing companies in return for not leaking, selling, or dumping stolen data, demand money, often huge amounts of money, to be paid in cryptocurrency. But in the NVIDIA standover, I don't, standover, that's weird, standoff, standover, anyway. But in the NVIDIA case, the Lapsus gang variously demanded NVIDIA to open source its graphic drivers or to remove the limitations imposed on recent NVIDIA graphics cards to restrict their use in crypto mining. Tonight, the news wires are buzzing with stories stating that seven suspected hackers have been arrested in the UK with many headlines insisting that this is a Lapsus bust. So far, however, as, as of the writing of this article, which was uh, March 25th, we haven't actually seen anything that explicitly connects these arrests with the Lapsus Group. The closest we've seen is a report on popular technology site TechCrunch, quoting a City of London police officer saying, quote, We have been conducting an investigation with its partners into members of a hacking group. Seven people between the ages of 16 and 21 have been arrested in connection with this investigation and, and have all been released under investigation. Our inquiries remain ongoing, unquote. So we don't officially know whether the alleged kingpin of Lapsus is amongst the seven who've been busted or if the arrests are related to Lapsus at all. So yeah, that was kind of a prescient thing because since that's come out, this Lapsus gang has started hacking again. Uh, they had posted this note saying they were quote-unquote back from vacation. So I'm not really sure what's going on here. There was a lot of buzz about these arrests being uh, from this Lapsus group, but at this point, I'm not sure that we really know. So stay tuned. But basically, I wanted to bring it up because there's been so many headlines saying that it was these guys. But in the background, I'm seeing a lot of people hedging on that and saying we're not really sure. All right, next up, and this is an article from Mashable. Uh, and it's about uh, the FCC flagging the Russian cybersecurity firm Kaspersky uh, as a risk to national security. And it says... The U.S. Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC, has deemed all products and services from the Russia-based cybersecurity firm Kaspersky as, quote, an unacceptable risk to national security, unquote. According to the FCC's release, the move comes at an effort to uphold 2019's Secure and Trusted Communications Networks Act, which requires the agency to publish a list that details any communications equipment or services which may present a risk to national security. The company's inclusion on the list means it is banned from receiving support from the FCC's Universal Service Fund. According to Reuters, the $8 billion fund is used to maintain communication services in rural areas and for low-income users and facilities. So in other words, this doesn't have a lot of impact. It's more headline-grabbing because it's kind of a political thing. Anyway, back to the article. Kaspersky's arrival on the covered list this year follows a 2017 directive barring the company's flagship antivirus product on federal computer systems. More recently, the FCC's move subsequently spurred bug bounty platform HackerOne to indefinitely suspend Kaspersky from using its services, as announced on Twitter. Kaspersky has maintained that such federal action against its services is unconstitutional, claiming both the initial 2017 prohibition and this year's covered list designation to be based not on actual evidence against the company, but rather political motivations. That's the position the company took in a statement to Bleeping Computer earlier this week. And this is a quote from that statement. It says, quote, 
Kaspersky maintains that the U.S. government's 2017 prohibitions on federal entities and federal contractors from using Kaspersky products and services were unconstitutional. This decision is not based on any technical assessment of Kaspersky products that the company continuously advocates for, but instead is being made on political grounds, unquote. All right, so there was more to the article on that, but I... I bring this up because this is tricky stuff. I mean, yes, this company is based in Russia. So could the Russian government, you know, be forcing them to do bad things uh, on the government's behalf? Yeah, possibly. And that's true with yeah, that's true with U.S. companies abroad as well, right? I mean, it goes both ways. And could there be, you know, Russian operatives, you know, spies or whatever working within the company and trying to subvert their products? Yeah, but they could be working in any company on the planet. So this is tricky stuff. I'm not saying I know the answer here, but guilt by association really doesn't work in this case. It's a private company. They've done a lot of really good work in the past uh, in terms of security stuff. And I don't know that you can really make a blanket ban like this. I mean, I understand where they're coming from. And I know that, like, for instance, China's Huawei was banned in in kind of a similar way. That's a little bit different, maybe. But I don't don't know. It's tricky stuff. And of course, it could now go both ways. I mean, I'm not sure we're too worried about Russia banning our products at this point. But if China were to ban some of our products, that would be a big deal. So again, I'm not sure I've got the answer here, but I just want to talk about this stuff and get it out in the open and be thinking about it and just not have a knee-jerk reaction. I'm not sure, while it sounds good on paper, that this was a justified move or if it even makes sense or if it's going to make us safer. It's, it's really hard to tell. Next up, there's an article here from Tom's Guide uh, about a new password stealing methodology. Actually, I'm not sure if it's super new, but this person, this hacker named Mr. Docs, has published some really compelling examples of how to do this particular, what they call a browser-in-browser attack to fish your passwords. And uh, anyway, let me, let me read the article, and then we'll, we'll talk more about it. There's a new way to steal your passwords and other vital information, and it's so well done that most people would fall for it. A pseudonymous hacker called Mr. Docs last week put up a blog post detailing a very good browser-in-the-browser attack in which an attacker creates a fake pop-up login window within a web page. The window isn't really a pop-up, but instead part of the underlying web page. However, Mr. Docs has rigged it so that you can actually grab the pop-up window and move it around by clicking the title bar with your mouse cursor. That's pretty convincing, even though you might not be able to resize the fake window or scroll through it, and you definitely wouldn't be able to drag it past the edge of the underlying web page's window. Nonetheless, most people will be fooled. The fake pop-up can mimic an Apple, Facebook, Google, or Microsoft login page perfectly, right down to an icon in the title bar and a URL in the address bar. To avoid falling for this new attack, your best defense is to use one of the best password managers, which won't be fooled by a fake website, and I'll come back to that in a second. As mentioned above, if you're using a desktop browser, you could also try to resize or scroll the pop-up window, though it's possible that good JavaScript could replicate those actions. If so, try dragging the pop-up window past the edge of the main browser window. If the pop-up doesn't respond correctly, then it's fake. But that may be hard to do on a mobile browser. Fake pop-up attacks have been tried before, but they've generally looked terrible. Not so Mr. Dox's. This new attack takes advantage of the fact that so many websites use single sign-on or SSO services, whereby you can log into a website with a third-party username and password instead of having to create yet another account and password. Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and others provide SSO services for thousands of consumer-facing websites. Using SSO logins greatly cuts down on the number of login pages you need to fake. It also makes the passwords that you capture much more valuable. 
If you're a criminal, you can do a lot more with someone's password for Facebook than you can with the password to the website for Billy Bob's Bar and Restaurant Supply. All right, so there's more to the article than that, but that, that has the gist of it. Again, basically what this person is doing is using the magic of JavaScript and some of the fancy technologies built into every web browser today that gives us the ability to make really cool-looking websites and even games that all exist within your browser. He has come up with a method to create what looks like but isn't a pop-up login window like login with Facebook or login with Google and then it asks you to give your credentials for Google and Facebook so that you can log into this page and a lot of people like that they've gotten used to this it's so easy to log in with these things because then you don't have to create a new account with this other website that you're probably only going to go to once it's, it's just it's convenient but <laughs> There's a lot of downsides to doing that, and I would highly recommend that you do not do that. For one thing, you've now established a connection between whatever website you are on and the service they're using to log in, probably Facebook, maybe Google. That's a data sharing arrangement. That is a privacy nightmare. Second, like this article says, when you do it that way, that means that that single set of credentials, your Facebook credentials or your Google credentials or whatever that you're using for this single sign-on, now can be used in many, many other places beyond just Google and Facebook. And so really the best mitigation for this, the best protection for this is the first one they mentioned, and that is use a password manager. That password manager will not be fooled by these fake pop-ups and fake websites. If you go to look like websites or pop-ups that try to get you to enter credentials for a site that that's not really what it is, your password manager will not offer to fill it in because you're not really on Facebook or you're not really on Google or you're not on one of those sites where you used those credentials to log in. So that is another great reason to be using a password manager. And if you're using a password manager, it's no big deal to create new passwords for these websites. So you can create your own dedicated account for each of these sites with its own strong and unique password that has nothing to do with your Google or Facebook password. Okay, moving on. So this is sort of a meta article because it's Bruce Schneier. It's from his blog, uh, and he's quoting two other articles uh, in his article. Terse as usual, which is why I like his blog. It gets straight to the point, and it kind of does my work for me. So so, uh, anyway, this is from Bruce Schneier's blog, and it just starts off with him saying, this is a big deal. And he's now quoting from an Ars Technica article, and it says... A developer has been caught adding malicious code to a popular open source package that wiped files on computers located in Russia and Belarus as part of a protest that has enraged many users and raised concerns about the safety of free and open source software. The application, Node-IPC, adds remote inter-process communication, and that's what IPC stands for, and neural networking capabilities to other open source code libraries. As a dependency, Node IPC is automatically downloaded and incorporated into other libraries, including ones like Vue.js, which has more than 1 million weekly downloads. The Node IPC update is just one example of what some researchers are calling protestware. Experts have begun tracking other open source projects that are also releasing updates calling out the brutality of Russia's war. This spreadsheet, and that's a link, which if you go to the show notes, you can find. Uh, this spreadsheet lists 21 separate packages that are affected. One such package is ES5-EXT, which provides code for the ECMAScript 6 scripting language. And ECMAScript, by the way, is a, it's, <laughs> it's a name that does not roll off the tongue, which is why it's rarely used, but it's the official name of, of JavaScript. is actually is ECMAScript, E-C-M-A script. A new dependency named postinstall.js 
which the developer added on March 7th, checks to see if the user's computer has a Russian IP address, in which case the code broadcasts a, quote, call for peace, unquote. And this is back to Bruce. He says, it constantly surprises non-computer people how much critical software is dependent on the whims of random programmers who inconsistently maintain software libraries. Between Log4j and this new protestware, it's becoming a serious vulnerability. The White House tried to start addressing this problem last year, requiring a quote-unquote software bill of materials for government software. And here's a quote from that executive order. It says, quote, The term software bill of materials, or SBOM, means a formal record containing the details and supply chain relationships of various components used in building software. Software developers and vendors often create products by assembling existing open source and commercial software components. The SBOM enumerates these components in a product. It's analogous to a list of ingredients on food packaging. An SBOM is useful to those who develop or manufacture software, those who select or purchase software, and those who operate software. Developers often use available open source and third-party software components to create a product. An SBOM allows the builder to make sure those components are up to date and to respond quickly to new vulnerabilities. Buyers can use an SBOM to perform vulnerability or license analysis, both of which can be used to evaluate risk in a product. Those who operate software can use SBOMs to quickly and easily determine whether they are at a potential risk of a newly discovered vulnerability. A widely used machine-readable SBOM format allows for greater benefits through automation and tool integration. The SBOMs gain greater value when collectively stored in a repository that can be easily queried by other applications and systems. Understanding the supply chain of software, obtaining an SBOM, and using it to analyze known vulnerabilities are crucial in managing risk. And then it goes back to Bruce, and he just says, it's not a solution, but it's a start. So I've been talking about both of these things for quite a while. In fact, we interviewed someone on the podcast a while back who is, was in the U.S. government advocating for these software bill of materials, these SBOMs. And it really is a great idea. It's not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. But it is really, it, it's really a good starting point. And it's, again, it's about awareness and transparency. And it, it likens it to ingredients, um, you know, when you're reading the ingredients of a food product. But to me, it's more like a parts list, well, which is often called a bill of materials for like a car. So cars are, are manufactured all over the place. And, you know, you like to think this car was made in America or whatever, but so many of those parts are coming from other places around the globe and they're all complicated parts. And those parts themselves have other parts. There's all these components, like an engine. There's a lot of components to an engine. Uh, you're not likely to buy an engine and all of that came from one company or a transmission. And so it's, it's not enough to know that, Hey, I bought this transmission from this uh, third party supplier. I need to know where they got their parts from because they've certainly got component parts from theirs from somewhere else. So it's this tree, this hierarchy of, of things and software is no different. In fact, it's really bad today with software. So many software components today uh, are free and open source projects. And those are dependent on other free and open source projects uh, or other third-party projects. Uh, it's this huge tree of dependencies. And to really protect that stuff, you need to know everything that's going into your software. And an SBOM is really the way to do that. And it really should be mandatory. But now to the broader issue. So this developer, in, in his way, trying to protest what's going on in Ukraine modified one of these open source projects that are used in a lot of other projects and therefore automatically pulled into those products when they update their own software and build a new version of their software. 
and was doing something based on whether or not the IP address of the person running the eventual software product that included his stuff uh, happened to be using a Russian IP address, which, by the way, doesn't mean that they're Russian. Uh, they could be using a VPN for some reason that comes out in Russia, so their IP address would appear to be from Russia, even though they're not. And then doing something. In this case, maybe just putting up a little banner, you know, to kind of a little poke in the eye saying, hey, what you're doing is bad, yada, yada, yada. But some of these were actually doing malicious things based on that. So again, I think Bruce's overall point is correct in that this is just another thing that is exposing our vulnerabilities here with this massive dependency tree on these third-party and open-source software projects. We need 100% transparency here to really to understand what we're building into our products and, and know when we may be vulnerable. All right, next up, I, I talked about this recently when it was proposed, so I'm just going to talk about it very quickly here because it was now signed into law. Uh, and this is from Info, Info Security Magazine. And it says, U.S. critical infrastructure companies will be obliged to report cyber incidents within 72 hours to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, under quote-unquote game-changing legislation signed into law by President Biden this week. Covered entities will also be obliged to report any ransomware payments to CISA within 24 hours under the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022. The legislation was drafted amid surging ransomware attacks and other cyber threats facing critical infrastructure organizations exacerbated by the Russia-Ukraine conflict. In addition to deterring organizations from making ransomware payments, which by the way happen all the time and we're not aware of because they're not required to report it, the measures are designed to provide more intelligence into cyber attacks and threat actor plans. This, in turn, will assist information sharing between federal agencies like the Department of Justice and the FBI, helping ensure there is a standardized approach to dealing with critical infrastructure cyber attacks. The new reporting requirements will apply to organizations that fall within the 16 U.S. critical infrastructure sectors as defined by CISA. And I looked that up. That's some of the ones you would recognize certainly are chemical, communications, defense, emergency services, energy, financial, food and agriculture, transportation, water and wastewater, healthcare, IT, nuclear reactors, dams, and so on. These firms must report, quote unquote, substantial cyber incidents, such as those that cause danger to the safety and, res and resiliency of operational systems or processes or disrupts business or industrial operations. The act requires that these reports contain various details about such incidents. This includes a description of relevant vulnerabilities, efforts taken to mitigate the attack, categories of data believed to have been accessed or acquired by an authorized person, I think that would mean unauthorized person, and any actor reasonably believed to be responsible for the incident. Organizations would also be required to supplement their information as, quote, substantial new or different information becomes available, unquote. Companies that fail to report cybersecurity incidents or ransomware payments may be issued with a subpoena by CISA. Now, here's the kicker. Last paragraph. The requirements have not come into effect yet, with the CISA director given two years to publish a notice of proposed rulemaking to implement the act, and 18 months after that to issue the final rule. <laughs> so, as usual, it's a great idea, but bureaucracy always wins. This is not going to see the light of day for three and a half years? That's ridiculous. I hope that they step up that timeline. That's that's dumb. All right, next up, this is from 9to5Mac, and it's about the Yandex search engine, which is a Russia-based search engine. But it turns out it's used in a lot more places than that. So, uh, And this article quotes uh, an article from the Financial Times, which I would have loved to have gone to directly, but it's behind a paywall, so I can't. 
So anyway, this is 9to5's summary of the Financial Times article. So it says, a report today says that, quote unquote, Russian Google Yandex is sending data harvested from millions of iOS app users to Russia, whether or not you use the company's apps. Laws there could compel the company to make the data available to the Russian government. Your data can be grabbed from a wide range of third-party apps, which use a developer tool created by Yandex. Developers save time and money by using the Yandex API app metrica to obtain analytics data for their app, while the company gets user data in return. The Financial Times says that a security researcher discovered the code which sends data to Russia and that it has independently verified the claims. And this is a quote from the Financial Times article. It says, Russia's biggest internet company has embedded code into apps found on mobile devices that allows information about millions of users to be sent to servers located in its home country. Researcher Zach Edwards first made the discovery regarding Yandex's code as part of an app auditing campaign for me to be Alliance, a nonprofit. Four independent experts ran tests for the Financial Times to verify this work. So now it jumps back and forth between the 9 to 5 people and New York Times. I'm just going to read this through. Yandex admits that it collects the data and sends it to servers in Russia, but claims that it is extremely hard to identify users from the information collated. However, experts disagree. Cher Scarlett, formerly a principal software engineer and global security at Apple, said once user information was collected on Russian servers, Yandex could be obliged to submit it to the government under local laws. Other experts said that the metadata of the sort collected by Yandex could be used to identify users. The security and privacy implications could be huge. Among the apps with AppMetrica installed are games, messaging apps, location sharing tools, and hundreds of virtual private network tools designed to allow people to browse the web without being tracked. Seven of the VPNs are made specifically for a Ukrainian audience. Total installs of apps that include the AppMetrica SDK are in the hundreds of millions, according to App Figures, an app intelligence group. We already know from attempts to circumvent apps' app tracking transparency privacy requirements that a vast range of innocuous-sounding data can be combined into digital signatures, which can be tied to individual devices. The same approach used by websites can be used by app APIs. All right, so real quick, I want to go back to the VPN thing, that statement about VPNs being used to prevent you from being tracked. Yeah, they do. Uh, they give you a different IP address than your regular home IP address. That That's all there is to it. It can't always prevent tracking, but what it mainly does is it prevents whoever your internet service provider is at the moment, whether it's your home ISP or your cellular, cellular ISP or the Wi-Fi network at the hotel or the coffee shop from seeing what you're up to. But once you emerge from the VPN server out onto the internet, it's just like you've always been on the internet. And that can still be tracked. And if they're tracking you by anything other than IP address, they can still track you. VPNs have got to be one of the most misunderstood security and privacy products on the planet. But anyway, what, what the gist of this article is saying is that Yandex, like a lot of big software companies, like Google in particular, do analytics. And that is a very helpful metrics tool so that people using apps and websites can see how many people visit their site, where those people are coming from, how long they stayed on their site, what did they click on while at the site. These are all things that if I want to improve my website, I really want to know. But obviously, in the process of doing this, by giving away these free analytic services, they are inserting themselves into all of these apps and all of these web pages and are gathering tons of data for their own purposes, usually marketing and advertising. 
But the side effect of all that is now you've got all this super juicy data on people and what they've been up to. And in this case, it's going back to a company that resides in Russia. And again, like I said with Kaspersky, that doesn't make them bad, but it does make them subject to Russian laws. And if Russia were to step in tomorrow, you know, perhaps in a secret way that wouldn't be made public to say, hey, we need all this data and you need to hand it over now or face consequences, they would probably have to do that. But it's the same thing with Google and other companies and Facebook, right? I mean, all that data they're collecting could be possibly demanded by whatever country might have, you know, jurisdiction in a particular case, but it's also ripe for hacking and stealing and abuse by rogue employees. So the solution here is to stop collecting all this damn data. All right, let's move on. Here's another article about data being exposed, and it's uh, from a slightly different angle, however. This is from Laptop Magazine, of all places. I don't often read there, but I came across this article. Uh, and it says the following. As you casually input sensitive information into a cryptocurrency app, a dating service, or a shopping platform, you may assume that the folks behind the mobile applications are doing their part to protect your data. Obviously, if you listen to this podcast, you wouldn't assume that, but let me continue. But according to a new Checkpoint Research investigation, you'd be sorely mistaken. CPR released a scathing report exposing mobile applications for leaving their users' personal data unprotected and accessible to hackers. And by the way, if it's unprotected, then it's accessible to anybody, not just hackers, because it requires no hacking to get to. The most unnerving aspect of the investigation is that malicious actors only need one thing to pull off a data breach, a browser. During a three-month research study, CPR investigators discovered that a whopping 2,113 mobile apps left their databases exposed and unprotected in the cloud. These apps ranged from 10,000-plus downloads to more than 10 million downloads. Some of the sensitive data CPR researchers spotted included cryptocurrency exchange information, healthcare token IDs, personal family photos, and more. In one harrowing example, CPR uncovered 50,000 private messages from a popular dating app. And this is a quote from CPR's head of threat intelligence and research, Lotem Finkelstein. Quote, in this research, we show how easy it is to locate data sets and critical resources that are open on the cloud to anyone who could simply get access to them by browsing. Unquote. Finkelstein added that malicious actors can access mobile apps exposed databases in a few simple steps that involve searching public file repositories for mobile apps that use cloud storage services. Another quote from Finkelstein says, quote, everything we found is available to anyone. Ultimately, with this research, we prove how easy it is for a data breach or exploitation to occur, unquote. At this time, CPR is not revealing the names of the mobile apps in question, but the following is a small sample of the 2,000-plus platforms that left its users exposed during the investigation period. One, a department store application, one of the largest chains in South America with 10 million-plus downloads, and it exposed API gateway credentials and an API key. And by the way, what that probably means is that people could use that information to log into this person's account. Two, a running tracker app with 100,000 plus downloads, and it exposed users' GPS coordinates and health parameters like heart rate. Three, a dating app for people with disabilities with 10,000 plus downloads, and it exposed 50,000 private messages in an open database. Four, a logo design app with 10 million plus downloads, and it exposed 130,000 usernames, emails, and passwords. Uh, fifth, a social audio platform app for users to share and listen to podcasts with 5 million plus downloads. It exposed the user's bank details, location, phone numbers, chat messages, purchase history, and more. And finally, six, a bookkeeping application with a million plus downloads exposed 280,000 phone numbers associated with at least 80,000 company names, addresses, bank balances, cash balances, invoice counts, and emails. 
And then it wraps up by saying, this study exposes a glaring security issue. Mobile apps are too negligent with its users' personal data. CPR also called out cloud security developers, concluding that they must take steps to add better protections to their services. So yeah, actually, I want to start with that very last part of that last sentence. These app makers are almost surely using cloud-based services to store this data, like Amazon Web Services and so on. There should be no way possible to have unprotected data in a situation like that. There should be no way to set up an online database or online data store that is not encrypted and protected. I mean, just just don't allow it. I mean, it's just, it should just not be possible. But that aside, these companies are obviously doing horrible things. And I really hope that there's like legal and financial consequences to these companies that have done this. But more than likely, if there's no privacy regulations, maybe they didn't actually do anything wrong legally. So this goes back to minimalization, which we talked about recently, which is a great term that the people at TechLore are using, which I want to adopt. And that is minimize your data. Uh, We can ask the companies to minimize your data, but they're not going to do it unless forced to. And so until then, it's up to you, us, to not sign up for services you don't need. And when you're done with those services, ask them to delete all of your data and close your account. And then hopefully they'll do that. Though, again, they may not be legally required to. And then that data is just not there. And obviously, at the get-go, don't give up more information than you absolutely have to. And in situations where you can, give dummy information. Lie. All right, last article, and then we get to the tip of the week. Uh, And this is from Ars Technica. Google is on a quest to kill the third-party web cookie, which is often used by advertisers to track users for targeted ads. Unlike other browser companies like Apple and Mozilla, which block third-party cookies outright, Google is one of the world's largest advertising companies. It doesn't want to kill the third-party cookie without first protecting its primary revenue source. Google seems to view user tracking as a mandatory part of internet usage, and instead of third-party cookies, it wants to build a user tracking system directly into its Chrome browser. Google's eye-roll-inducing name for this advertising system is the quote-unquote privacy sandbox. And on Thursday, and this I think was last Thursday, the company released its latest tracking solution in Chrome's nightly Canary Builds. And I'll come back to what that means in a minute. The latest Chromium blog laid out the current timeline, says, quote, starting today, if developers can begin testing globally, the topics, Fledge, and that's some sort of acronym, and attribution reporting APIs in the Canary version of Chrome, will progress to a limited number of Chrome beta users as soon as possible. Once things are working smoothly in beta, we'll make API testing available in the stable version of Chrome to expand testing to more Chrome users, unquote. And so, yeah, let me, let me just stop real quick in the middle of this. Uh, so the Canary build, this is, that's actually more like an alpha um, product. So it's, this is a very, very limited release. It's kind of developers only and people who sign up for this. If you're using Chrome right now, you are not on a Canary build. In fact, you're also not on the beta builds. You're on the regular production release uh, of Chrome. So they release these things in phases, right? So as you're developing software, you release it to a small group first. These are the Canary builds. These are meant to be unstable. It's for people who want the cutting edge, who are developers who need these, you know, to test upcoming features uh, that they might want to interact with, but don't go to the general public. And then beta, depending on how they do it, they may start rolling out to a subset of Chrome users maybe. And so, you know, maybe you'll get the update, but most people won't kind of thing. And then eventually it goes out to everybody. So right now this is, in testing, this is something that you cannot see with your regular version of Chrome. All right, back to the article. 
Topics, and that's their new technology. Topics will have Chrome locally track your browsing history and build a list of interests, which Chrome will then share with advertisers whenever they ask for ad targeting. If you want a breakdown of the API name checked in Google Statement, the Fledge API, and there's a link there, which you can't click, but it's in the show notes, is responsible for both running an ad action directly on your device and picking an advertiser and then targeting users based on behavior, like leaving an item in a shopping cart. The Attribution Reporting API is responsible for measuring ad clicks, impressions, and tracking purchase conversions. Besides getting the first build of the system up and running for advertisers, Thursday's release also gives us a look at what the user controls will look like. There is now a privacy sandbox page, and if you happen to be on the Chrome Canary version, you could get to it this way, but you, you probably aren't. But just in case, it's instead of it's HTTP, it's Chrome, C-H-R-O-M-E, colon, slash, slash, settings, slash, privacy sandbox. That's the page. And all of that's lowercase except for the S in sandbox. So there is now a privacy sandbox page where you can enable or disable the trial. The browser-based ad personalization page lets you see what topics Chrome believes you're interested in, and you can remove any you don't like. Again, this is only on the experimental Chrome Canary browser, which no one uses as a daily driver, so it will be a while before most people see these controls. Google's first swing at a Chrome user tracking system was called Flock, F-L-O-C, but after many privacy advocates spoke out against that idea, Google dropped it and pivoted to the current Topics solution. There isn't a huge difference between the two systems, other than it seems less likely that someone would be able to individually target a user with a Topics API. And I've got some issue with that. I'll come back to that in a second. It's hard not to find both proposals extremely gross. Google argues that it's mandatory that it builds a user tracking and advertising system into Chrome, and the company says it won't block third-party cookies until it accomplishes that. Google built its empire on the back of its advertising and user tracking systems and receives 82% of its total revenue from ads. A lot of Google products are developed, launched, and shut down with absolutely no bearing on Google's bottom line. But this is the foundation of the Google empire that we're talking about. It seems existentially important that Google forces a favorable outcome no matter what the rest of the internet says. All right, so I actually talked about this topic thing a while back. I don't, I don't really think it's the same as Flock. I think it has a lot of potential, actually. It may actually come up with a semi-decent compromise. Of course, the devil's in the details and the proof is in the pudding. You know, pick your idiom. But I think that they listen to some feedback, and I think they're, I think, I think they're trying to do this in a better way. And it, I'm not ready to throw this out just yet, but it still provides a great segue into our tip of the week, which is de-googling your life. So this is part four of the series. Actually, if you're really counting, it's part five because I had a strategy one that I kind of, it's kind of part zero. This is probably going to be the last one in this series. I think I've covered all the major bases here. I mean, Google has a ridiculous number of products, uh, but I think I've covered the really popular ones and the ones that are really worst about stealing your data. And there's two left that I want to cover today as part of our tip of the week. And that is Google Drive and Google Docs. So Google Drive is a cloud drive. It's, it's a place to store files, usually in a folder on your your computer somewhere, or also possibly in a, uh, some app on your device, on your smartphone. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a folder of files. And all those files are synchronized behind the scenes through the cloud to all your devices. So you can have that same magic folder on multiple devices and whatever changes in one will change in all. And it's all backed by some sort of a cloud service, uh, some sort of cloud storage service, which means that Google, uh, in the case of Google Drive, also has access to all of those files. 
And so Dropbox was really the original one in this category. They really nailed it. They weren't the first, but they were probably the best early on and maybe the most popular. And then everybody copied them. So Apple has iCloud, Google has Google Drive, Microsoft has OneDrive, and there's many other third parties that have entered this space as well. And what most of them have in common, certainly the ones that I just mentioned, are that while all of your data is encrypted in transit, you know, as it's transferring to and from all your devices through the cloud, and while it's being stored on the cloud at Google servers, are all encrypted. But these service providers have the encryption keys. So it's like taking your stuff to a you store it place when you, you know, when your garage is full and you need to store some stuff. But the you store it place has the key. So it's protected from everybody except from the place that's storing it. So in that sense, these things are all, you know, very, very private from everybody but us. I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go into it too much here, but I did a lot of research into this a while back. Uh, Dropbox was the one I had been using for many, many years, and it just got really pushy, and I started to worry about privacy when I realized that uh, I couldn't control the encryption keys. And I did much searching, and I ended up going with a company called Sync.com, S-Y-N-C.com. And what I love about Sync.com is, well, first of all, it has all the same features. So it it has the great same feature set that you're going to find in all these other systems like Google Drive and Dropbox. But it's private by default. Everything is encrypted. And crucially, it's client-side encrypted, which means it's encrypted at the source. So at your computer, it's encrypted. And by the time they get that information, they can't read it because it's encrypted with keys that you own. And these are keys that you don't necessarily have to manage yourself. The app takes care of that for you, but they're all kept locally on your machine, which means that some rogue employee at sync.com can't go sifting through your files. It also means that if served with a warrant, they can't cough up anything other than the encrypted files. So anyway, there are other ones like it. Tresserit is another one. There are, there are other ones that are privacy oriented. If you uh, go to the show notes, uh, or if you go to my article on this on my blog, you'll find links to some other ones you could look at. But I want to throw out a couple other interesting options for you here. Uh, if you really like what you're using now, if you love Dropbox or you love Google Drive, and you are pretty sure that you don't care that Google is going through those things, and I would argue that you should care, but let's just say that you're all in already and you don't want to move. Uh, and you'd be happy just to encrypt a subset of those files. You know, maybe you only have a few personal files. Well, there is a nice tool called Cryptomator. And again, there's links in the show notes to this that will let you set up what's called a vault folder. And so you designate this folder as a Cryptomator vault and everything in that folder, and there could be other folders and files in that one folder, is encrypted with a key that you maintain. And all those files will still synchronize uh, across the web to your other devices, to your other computers and your other mobile devices, but only you will be able to see those files. Now, I said mobile there. I'm not, actually, now that I say that, I'm not sure whether or not Cryptomator has a way for you to look at those files on like an iPhone. It may, I'll have to look at this, it may only work for computers. But for instance, I've got a laptop and a desktop, so I synchronize files between them all the time. And what this would do would be allow me to create a special folder in Dropbox or in Google Drive or in Microsoft OneDrive or whatever that is hidden from those services and only available to me. And I would have to launch Cryptomator on my computer to open that folder so I could see its contents. Now, another interesting option is an open source tool called SyncThing. That's S-Y-N-C-T-H-I-N-G. And what it does is it's kind of like a decentralized magic folder or cloud drive because it really isn't stored in the cloud anywhere. It's stored on your computer and your computer only. 
So for this to work, you have to have more than one computer. So if you set up a sync thing folder, a synchronized folder on, let's say, your laptop and your desktop computers that you own, it will manage syncing whatever files are in that magic folder between those two computers. So if you change it on one, it will change it on the other. And what that means is you now have a backup of those files on two different computers. But crucially, there's no cloud service in between. So nobody else has your files but you. It can also be a nice way to share files with other people. Maybe you could set up a shared ebook library or, or shared music library or something like that. Of course, which probably violates copyright, but you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's something that people might want to share. So anyway, those are two other options. There's a third option, which I'm going to talk about in, in just a minute. All right. So next up, Google Docs. This is both tough and easy. Again, so there are lots of office suites out there and a lot of them have migrated to the cloud. You know, Apple's iCloud, you can do on the web if you really wanted to. You could do pages and numbers and Keynote, which is their equivalent of Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, respectively. And those Microsoft applications have cloud versions as well. You could do all of those on the web with a Microsoft 365 account. And because they're files, they integrate directly with their cloud drives, you know, iCloud and OneDrive and Google Drive. But in all those cases, they can see your files. There may be individual ways to password protect some of those files, but it's just a pain in the butt to have to do it on every file or even to do it on a per folder basis sometimes can be just painful. What you really want is privacy by default. So I looked and looked and looked and looked, and it was really hard to find a solid privacy respecting replacement for this. There's one that I tried using for many years called CryptPad, which we talked a little about with Henry from, from TechLore last week. But it's just, it's just hard to use. It's, it's slow to open the docs. It, it has its heart in the right place, but it's nowhere near as easy to use as like Google Docs. There are some other ones like Zoho Docs, that's Z-O-H-O. Um, that's a four-pay service, but it, that's kind of along the lines of Fastmail. It's it's a great service. It's not Google. So if you just want something that's not Google, like you know maybe going to Fastmail instead of Gmail, it's a paid service. They don't have any reason to mine your stuff for data. But from a privacy standpoint, they still could look at your data if, if they wanted to. There's another new service that looks very promising called Skiff. That's S-K-I-F-F, and it's uh, skiff.org. Uh, right now, it's kind of in beta. You have to sign up for it, and they only have a document editor. For instance, they don't have a spreadsheet or a presentation thing yet or forms or anything like that. It's still brand new, but it looks really slick. Uh, it's very privacy-oriented. That's something that someday might be a great drop-in replacement for Google Docs. But the one that I ended up going with that, I, that I'm probably going to invest in is called OnlyOffice. And it's another cloud-based productivity suite, basically. It, you know, it's got a spreadsheet thing. It's got a document editor. It's got a presentation editor. It's got a forms editor. You can share files uh, with other people on the internet, whether or not they have an OnlyOffice account or not. It works basically just like Google Docs. But you can get perfect privacy. Now, the problem is, the way to get the perfect privacy is you need to host the server yourself, which means you need to be your own cloud provider. Now, that may sound impossible, but it's it's actually never been easier to do this today. And yet it's still not for the faint of heart. So uh, I am doing this because I'm a tech guy, I'm a computer guy, and I can make this happen. I am hosting my own only office instance in a cloud-based Linux server that I control completely. And I used a company called Linode or Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D-E. And there are other ones like it. There's one called um, DigitalOcean that does a very similar thing. And for like seven bucks a month, which is five bucks for the server and two bucks for backup. 
I can run my own Linux-based server up in the cloud that they manage for me in terms of making sure it's available and up at all times. And then I can run whatever software on there I want. And they, they can get into it, I guess, if they wanted to. But if I encrypt the files, it won't matter. Now, you can also have only Office hosted for you. And now you're back to the trade-off between who you're going to trust. But again, it's not Google. Uh, and you're paying for these things, so they shouldn't have to mine your data. So you can pay them to host this for you in a cloud instance, and it's a private instance just for you, and you have ways to password protect the files if you want. So that is another way to go. Now, this all brings me to this one other wildcard, and that's called NextCloud. So NextCloud is like a step above OnlyOffice. In fact, NextCloud has OnlyOffice as one of its many, many plugins. So NextCloud is another way that you can host something in the cloud yourself uh, and have complete control over it and therefore maintain that privacy. But you have to host it, host it yourself like we just did with OnlyOffice or you've got to go to a trusted hosting provider to host it for you. And NextCloud has a bunch of plugins, one of which is OnlyOffice. So it does the Google Drive part in that it's a cloud-based file storage thing, but it also does many other things. You could do email with it. Um, it's almost like a real full tilt Google replacement, like on many levels. But these are, <laughs> these are not for the faint of heart. Uh, again, you're still trusting, you still have to trust the hosted provider unless you're willing to do it yourself, which is not easy to do. Uh, so I'm bringing it up in the sense of completeness. So bottom line, I guess what I'm going to recommend here is if you want to get rid of Google Docs, first of all, just use anything other than Google Docs. <laughs> I probably wouldn't use Microsoft Office 365. I'd, I'd be worried about you know privacy there. Apple's iCloud suite is probably pretty private. Again, they're not a company that is based on advertising revenue. Microsoft shouldn't be either, but they're doing a lot of shady stuff on some of their products to mine your data. So using Apple's iCloud stuff in the you know in the cloud for for storing documents and working on documents in a web browser, like kind of like Google Docs, is okay. But check out OnlyOffice and check out Skiff. And if you need the cloud storage part as well, and you don't want to use sync.com for some reason, you might look at NextCloud and have a, some hosting provider pay them to host a NextCloud instance for you. And as part of that, you can install OnlyOffice and get all these Google Docs features. So you can see why I saved this one for last, because it's not that straightforward. There are other solutions you could use, like Zoho Docs, like I said, or CryptPad. So there are other options. And the main thing here is to de-Google, to reduce your Google footprint. So those are some other options for you. So there you have it. There is your final de-Google My Life installment uh, and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up. Thanks again to everybody who entered and congratulations to the 10 big winners. Again, I'm going to be doing more promotions throughout the year as I want to try to grow my audience and reach more people. So there'll be lots of more interesting things. So stay tuned. Next week will be another interview show. And I think I'm going to end up uh, doing the one from the Tech Learning Collective. And these are great guys with very interesting stuff. But I've got so many interviews in the hopper. There's a lot of great stuff coming down the pike. So that's going to do it for this week, everybody. Take care out there. Stay safe. And as always, until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.